0: You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. All right. Well, hey, guys, good morning. My name is Ryan. If you are new to North Valley, we are glad that you're here. I just got back from a trip in Los Angeles visiting a church plant that uh, we took up an offering uh, called the Hope Offering. We do that every year to give hope to those who need it the most. And, uh, you know, my son and I were riding back on I-10 uh, late last night, and he said to me, Dad, we are so blessed at North Valley. Uh, this is an urban church plant. They've been going at it for two years, and they've got about 20 adults in their church. Uh, it's, a, it's a, you know, they're, they're planting the gospel in a context that's incredibly diverse. There's a lot of challenges. And uh, my hope and heart is, is over the weeks to come, I'm going to share more with you about what God's doing in Crenshaw in downtown Los Angeles, and how we're going to be a part of that. We really do believe that God could use that church to really reach that community for Christ in a great way. It just takes a long time to break hard ground. And so this morning, my hope is uh, to share with you a lot of changes that go on in the life of the church. Uh, On the front page of USA Today, uh, it was really interesting. It had a a storyline about, uh, basically, about churches that are in inner cities, Um, and many of them are uh, abandoning their facilities, selling their facilities. Um, You've seen it before probably in churches in areas of maybe communities that you grew up in. There's a building there in the community, and then the demographics change in that community, and if the church and the leadership don't adapt and change with the community, then the church will die. This morning, we're going to be talking about change. Um, before we get into more and more of uh, today's message, if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up. We're in Acts chapter 9. Uh, we're going to look at a significant change in the life of the church. Uh, a, the, uh, the Saul of Tarsus is going to come to Christ. There's going to be a radical change in his life. Before we get started, though, I want to take a few minutes to share with you an update as to the church and how we're doing in the midst of a lot of change and transition. Uh, We've been in our buildings now for about 13 weeks. And um, as many of you know, um, you uh, committed financially to help us get on site, purchase the property, renovate the campus, and to get on site. But as you drove in, you can see there's still a lot of work to do. And so you're like walking around, probably seeing stuff, especially if you're new here, you're like, this is cool. This was an old wedding venue and a bar that we transformed into a kid's classroom. So we'd like to say from the bar room to the Sunday school classroom, that's where you'll find North Valley. Uh, but what, what, where we're at in the process is we've been on site 13 weeks. We're preparing for a grand opening on September 10th. And when we got in, uh, the city told us that we needed to do a massive site plan improvement that would cost roughly Three hundred to $400,000. And what that included uh, was paving the entire parking lot. It's You don't have to be a genius to figure it out that the city of Phoenix is kind of nervous about dry properties. They don't want anything to burn down. They don't like a lot of dust and all that. So here's the reality where we're at. They gave us certificate of occupancies to move into the buildings li- legally because we did everything they wanted to do. And they did not make us do all the site improvements first, but they told us you will have to do your site improvements at some time. So here's where we're at. The city could come any day to us and say, hey, Pastor Ryan, we want you to do your site plan improvement. Well, we're like, that's 300, but we've gotten estimates between 300 to $400,000 that we don't have right now. Here's what I want to encourage you to do is know that that big number is out there Um, pray with me for the city to be gracious and to work with us, but know this ahead of time financially, is that that need will be there and it won't go on, I promise you. The city's not going to ignore us for a year or two years or three years. We're going to have to fix the site at some point in the process. So, my hope and heart is, is that we're going to do this, is uh, immediately we're opening up a campus development fund, and we're going to tell the city that if they come to us. It's on, your, uh, on an envelope, and we are going to be setting aside funds on our operational budget every single month to fill that up and to show in good faith that we're moving towards that site plan improvement. We're going to pave uh, the parking lot. We've got to redo the curving system. We've got to redo the lighting system at some level, and we've got to build a retention area. For water and drainage. So that's coming. We're going to be doing that, but we need to show good faith and honesty that we're moving towards that goal and not ignoring it as a church. So when uh, finances come and there might be an increase, a sporadic gift of some sort, and you want to contribute towards that, please do that. We're doing that as a church. We're setting aside operational funds on a monthly basis to fill that up, and, and we got to do that. So That will the time will come, and I promise to keep you posted in that process. We could have uh, this. My hope would be is if the church was financially capable enough within the first twelve months of being on the site, we'd just finish everything out. We'd just pave everything, get it all done. And here's what you need to know: by investing into this church, you're not investing into just this church for you and me. So we don't have dust on our car. We're investing into an entity that God loves and will be here for your children and their children. We're shaping the North Valley. We're taking up an area of influence and saying, this is going to be the local church that will share and show the love of Jesus Christ to the North Valley at large. With that being said, there's some immediate needs I just want to bring to attention is um, we have some immediate needs that we need to address financially. Um, We have obviously, as you drove in, there's some You see the banner that we have up there. We need to get that sign. We need to create a permanent sign structure. The city wants us to do that. As you walk in, you see there's doors that are unpainted. Here's what happened. The church took on, uh, we're going to celebrate five years this September. We took on a nine acre project, renovated it and moved on site. It's remarkable work what we've done, but there's still, we need to finish this out. My hope is, is we've estimated about $8,500 for uh, immediate campus needs. My hope would be is we're going to kickstart that. My wife and I, um, we reassessed our finances, and we're putting a significant amount of money as a one-time gift in starting today, online we're going to do it, in under campus development. And uh, that's going to help uh, just do some electrical stuff, some painting stuff, some general maintenance on the campus and some improvements that are really going to be helpful. My hope is, is that we can get this place a little bit more cleaned up before grand opening on September 10th. Last but not least, I really want to challenge you to uh, help us invest into our kids' area. If you've ever been over there in the buildings, you can see that was the bar room and we've transformed it to the Sunday school classroom. And uh, there's no playgrounds, there's nothing for the kids. And what I, what I, what I would love to do is we've estimated about $16,000 that would help provide a play space, uh, outdoor shaded space for lower elementary and upper elementary in the back. And we can establish an area where the kids can call this place home. Um, if church isn't fun for kids, man, we're, we're going we're, we're to lose their attention. And so we want to teach them about Jesus, but we want to have fun the whole way through. If we've got values at North Valley, here they are. Faith in Jesus Christ, Family is incredibly important—the church family, uh, the biological family, friends, and then fun—and and and we got it. You'll see that kind of bleed through North Valley time and time again. So here's my encouragement to you. Some of you go, "Man, well, I just came into a financial situation where I could write a check." Uh, Some of you have already committed funds to the Area of Influence Initiative, and I'm going to just ask you: Would you just be faithful to finish your pledge and your commitment? those of you that helped us acquire the campus and renovate it. Um, But if you're in a position where you um, come into a new financial situation and you can up and give above and beyond your regular giving and your commitment, then go ahead and contribute to this campus development fund and we'll use those funds for those immediate needs right away. I mean, even this room has got to get finished out. These walls, like we just, we're going to leave it unfinished until the money comes in. We're not going to go borrow to do this level of work. We can do this. And so um, additionally, some of you that are new and you've not yet had the chance to participate financially and contribute, here's what's really cool. You can put your money to work and see it take root in physical effect immediately. And my hope is, is that we can, if we can uh, do this, uh, then we can really bless those kids. Uh, We can really create a campus that's a lot more family and friendly and open for us to hang out even after services. So let me pray, and if you've got questions about that uh, after service, and you want to come down and talk to me, then come down and talk to me. Um, Again, you can just fill out the campus development or give online at whatever level you sense that you want to, and I promise to keep you posted and updated as we go along. So let me pray for us, uh, and let's ask God to multiply our efforts uh, in this church and uh, bring this place up to speed where it needs to be uh, for the glory of God and for the good of the people in the North Valley uh, in our church family. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're already at work. God, you bless uh, surprisingly, unexpectedly, um, and you, you, you love your church. So Lord, I pray just for us as we stand at this uh, crossroads where we don't even know what the city's going to do with their request on our site plan, um, but we're, we're going to be faithful to take steps forward and walk in faith. Uh, and begin to prepare for that financially in our operations. Lord, I pray that uh, the individuals that have already committed their funds uh, towards uh, the purchase of the property and uh, the renovations, God, that they just continue to be faithful to finish that. And then God, as you provide uh, extraordinary ways, might we be generous and contribute so that we can continue to establish a, and finish the work here, uh, not only for our good, but for your glory and for our children and their children. Uh, To Christ be the glory in the North Valley. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen. Okay, well, this morning we're talking about change. The fear of change can be a barrier. Change is a big deal. Even in that conversation I just had, you're going to go home today and you're going to think about some possible changes you might make to how you allocate your resources. Change occurs when something's made new or different in one way or another. There's a few reasons why we fear change. We fear change because we're creatures of habit. We fear change. I mean, look at you. I see you. I know first service. I know where you sit. You sit in the same spot every time. Uh, You know, churches die and close their doors. There's actually two articles, one on the front page of uh, um, uh, uh, Arizona Republic and one on the USA Today, and both of them are talking about the change that's going on in the inner city, and that leaders are forced to either adapt or abandon their mission post because of the great changes that come. Uh, here's, the, here's what one of the, the guys says about change. He says, Every single church is called to make disciples. We know that, right? Help people follow Jesus. And he goes on to say, it has to decide: is it there to reach its community? even if its community changes. When there's change, the church must change too. There's a part of the church that never changed, and that's the message of the gospel message. Uh, but what should always change is our methods, our model on how we do ministry. We always need to assess and adjust. But we're creatures of habit and we don't like to change. Uh, we, or the reason for fear of change is we worry about being competent. As soon as you change something at work or in the church, people wonder, well, how am I going to do this? This is going to create more work. When there's change, it creates a fear of, do I really have what it takes anymore? In the life of the early church, we're going to see that there's a significant change in some potential leadership. And some of the apostles and the disciples are afraid, like, wait a second, this is totally different. This is going to create a lot more work than I thought. And here's another reason for change, uh, the fear of change, is that we fear just the unknown. When we don't know what's out there or what is, how to handle a situation, we, it, it naturally makes us afraid. This, uh, these reasons for change came out of a Harvard Business Review and a number of other research projects about the fear of change. As a church, we can't fear change. We need to make adjustments appropriately. The barrier of change in the early church was this. It was the idea that Saul of Tarsus converts to Christianity. This guy is a persecutor of the church. He was born in Tarsus around the same time as Jesus. His parents had moved him to Jerusalem in his adolescence. He went to the best schools. He studied under the great rabbi. Uh, Gamaliel. His parents raised him a devout Jew. He knew multiple languages, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. He approved of Stephen's death. He was a devout Jew that rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And there's this radical change that's about to happen in the early church. Saul of Tarsus, the rumor has it that he's come to faith in Jesus Christ and now he's received Jesus Christ as Lord. Saul will be this guy who goes in and he literally kicks down doors of Christians and tr- tried them and imprisoned them, dragging them to Jerusalem to try them. He authorized, he was kind of like an authorized vigilante. He was not just a mere religious renegade. He somehow uh, works with Caiaphas, the high priest, to attain these letters of documentation, a legal warrant in a sense, to grab, Jew- to grab Christians and try them being a rebel rouser against the Roman Empire. First thing we're going to see this morning about this early, uh, this change in the early church is that Saul persecutes Christians. We're going to look at the life of Saul. It says, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. That idea of breeding threats is an idiom that is a, a kind of a phrase that indicates that he, he, was a, he had an entirely hostile attitude and mindset against Christians. He was a murderer. He was the guy who approved of Stephen's death that we talked about just a few weeks ago. He was the guy who instigated and helped uh, perpetuate persecution for the very first time and, and took, uh, gave the approval for Stephen to be stoned to death. Luke, the historian, records the life of Paul as an incredibly dangerous man against the Christian church. He went to the high priest. That high priest is very likely Caiaphas and somehow acquired some kind of letters to the synagogues where he would go into places of worship where Christians were going into Jewish establishments and sharing about Jesus as the Messiah. And the high priest uh, Caiaphas really was the second most powerful individual in that area, right underneath uh, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. He was put in place to kind of keep peace. And so, of course, he's going to work with the Apostle Paul, or Saul at the time, and to allow him to kind of put an end to this Christianity, this, these people called uh, followers of Jesus. And at this time, it says that they were belonging to the way. They haven't even received the name of Christians yet. In chapter 11, we see that they're going to receive the name Christians. It was the idea that they belonged to the way of Jesus. They were followers of Jesus, men and women. He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. We see in verses 3 through 4 that God reveals himself in an incredible way to Saul. It says that now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. He was on his way to Damascus. Uh, he wanted to go there. Damascus was an important city. It was about 125 miles. It was a long ways off, and and he's going approaching Damascus, and suddenly it says a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" This is what's called a Christophany. It's a revelation of Jesus Himself. Look what it says in verses five through seven, and he said who are you, Lord? He he worshiped the Lord, the heavenly Father, but he did not receive Jesus Christ as as God. So he says, who are you, Lord? And he said to him, I am Jesus. Jesus Christ appears to him on the road to Damascus, and he says, whom you are persecuting. He tells him, but rise and enter the city and." You will be told what you are to do. The men who you're traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. The people that were traveling with Saul could hear what was going on, but they couldn't see anyone. The Ap- Saul saw Jesus Christ. God revealed himself in the, in, in the work of Jesus Christ, and he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's interesting to me that God takes... This the persecution of Christians incredibly personally and he says you're persecuting me Jesus intervenes and God reveals himself to Saul in a very powerful way continue on in verse 8 it says Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened he saw nothing so they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank I had a friend um, recently told me the story of his uh, life and ministry. He was a, a megachurch uh, leader in the Northwest, and he uh, went through a tremendous hardship, and the leadership turned on him and asked him to leave and step out. And He was accused and slandered of all these terrible things that were not true. And he went through such a season of stress and anguish, literally, he, he told me that he, he lost his sight. When you go through such a stress, there can be physical manifestations that are incredibly detrimental to the body. Here what we see is Saul has gone through such a, a traumatic experience that he loses his sight for three days. He could see nothing. It was likely the stress. It was likely a divine uh, uh, learning moment of incredible uh, humbling experience. This is Saul who is persecuting Christians and now God reveals himself to him on the road to Damascus and he's humbled. He has to be led by hand and brought into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus, verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vi- vision, Ananias... And he said, here I am, Lord. Ananias is a prominent figure in the church of Damascus. He was an early convert to Christianity. He was living in Damascus when Saul of Tarsus arrived there, supposedly to arrest Christians. Various traditions will say that Ananias was one of the 70 disciples in Jerusalem. Later, he'd become a bishop of Damascus and even a martyr for his faith. Ananias was an important figure that God's going to use, and he responds... And God's going to use Ananias to help uh, transition a massive change in the church. Saul of Tarsus is going to have a, an incredible plan and a purpose in God's expansion of the local church. Ananias responds and he says, here I am, Lord. Verse 11, and the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight into the house of Judas and look for a man of, of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. God was already working in Saul's life. God had already given Saul a vision that there's a gentleman named Ananias that was going to help him transition and regain his sight and regain his strength. So Ananias would have been afraid, because he is going to he has already heard of Saul. This guy hates Christians. And Ananias is terrified. Verse 13 through 14, to say it at the mildest, Ananias is reluctant to help Saul. Look what he says. But Ananias answered the Lord and says this, "I've heard from many about this man." Saul of Tarsus has been labeled. He's got a reputation. Ananias said, no, not just one or two people. I've heard many about this guy. Now he's kind of pushing back on the Lord saying, you want me to do what? He says, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name." The early Christians were categorized and described as the people who call on the name of the Lord. And, and Ananias calls them saints. And he, he's kind of fighting with God and saying, God, I don't, I don't, you, you don't understand. This guy's got an incredible reputation of, that's incredibly dangerous. And you want me to do what? I don't know about you, but me, when I became a Christian and converted to Christianity... I had a label and a reputation. People didn't want to receive me very easily and a lot of believers were very reluctant to be my friend because they were scared that I would hurt them. Not physically or whatever. I remember one time I was 16 years old and it dawned on me I had a terrible reputation and I was not loved and liked by, by everybody, like parents. So I go, and me and my friend are going to go pick up his girlfriend, and, I, and I, he's in the car, and at that time, we got pagers, you know? We're like sending messages through pagers backwards, you know? And so we're sitting there in the truck, and he says, hey, will you go to the door and knock on the door and ask if Melissa's home and, so we can take her out? So I say, sure, I'll go to the door. So I go to the door, and I, I was not a Christian at this time. I had a bad reputation. I go to the door, I knock on the door, and the mom opens the door, and she says, oh, it's you, and slams the door. I walk back to the truck and he goes, where's Melissa? I said, she, yeah, it, it, Melissa's mom's not letting her out because I'm with you. Then I become a Christian and it takes, it takes years before people trust my character to believe that actually there was a real conversion and I'm a good guy. I mean, I was the guy who got, when I was younger, I, I got baptized so that I could get this Christian girl to like me. I got baptized and she said to me, she said, did you just do that to get me? And I said, maybe. And she said, it's not going to work. So here what we see is there's this reluctancy to help Saul because he's got a terrible reputation. How many times have we labeled people being here in this church and somebody walks in and they got a reputation and you've seen them out and you know what they're doing. And our label can be a barrier to them. See, there's a barrier in the church right now because there's a massive change. Saul has met Jesus Christ. And people are afraid of this change. Ananias is afraid of the change. And he even complains to the Lord. Look what God does, though, in his grace. He, God reassures Ananias that Saul is a new believer. He says to this, but the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument. He's chosen. God had planned it, he'd purposed it, he'd predestined it, he'd set it up ahead of time. He's going to be used greatly by God. And his pathway isn't just going to be a triumph, there's going to be hardship. And the Lord shares this with Ananias and he says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer." He doesn't say that in a vindictive tone. He says that in a, a sobering tone. Saul of Tarsus will later be, he was a friend of Rome. He's a, he was a formerly a friend of the Jews, and the Jews are going to persecute him. He's going to be whipped, kicked, beat, drugged, shipwrecked. He's eventually going to be beheaded in Rome under the emperor Nero for his faith. The Lord says this in a sobering way that he's going to suffer for the sake of my name. This guy has gone through a tremendous change and people are reluctant. Saul has been labeled. You know, when we have uh, perceptions about people, sometimes that can be a barrier to what God wants to do. Saul is going to be used tremendously, but some believers need to accept him for what God has done. God is going to use Ananias to confirm Saul's faith. Look what happens in verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him said, brother Saul. That's a change. He was the guy, now he calls him brother. Why does he call him brother? Because he's accepted the reality this guy is part of the church family. Do you know when you become a Christian that you become a, 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 a son or a daughter of of the utmost high king. And you become part of the family of God, and that makes you and me brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you don't have a good family out in the Phoenix Valley or around the country, you can have a good family with the church. And so what happens here is Ananias is going to accept the change. He's going to overcome the barrier of fear and say, you know what, grace is enough. God's good enough. God's revealed this. I know this is a brother now. So now Ananias, what's really cool though, is God doesn't let Saul showboat and get the acceptance. He makes him incredibly humble. He's blind. He's got to get led into the city of Damascus. And then he's got to wait on this guy named Ananias to confirm his faith. God always uses people. You and me need to be a part of this. We're going to get some practical application here at the end. But when people are on the outsides and they're moving in, we've got to be the first to welcome them in and love them. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you. See, he's confident. He knows that the Lord's already worked on Saul. He said, he appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me. That's divine appointment. If you were here last week. Divine appointment so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. God uses Ananias to confirm Saul's faith. God's going to use Ananias to help overcome this barrier of change and the fear of change. And Ananias is at first, he's human. And I'm so glad he said what he said. God, are you sure? You don't understand. There's so many people that can testify this is a bad guy. Are you sure that you really want me to do this? What he's saying is, is he's H-U-M-A-N. He's human. Just like me and you. And we're afraid of the unknown. We're afraid of what could be different. And here we see is there's a radical change. The guy that persecutes the church is going to become the greatest promoter of the church. Saul's ministry is going to begin. But in verse 18 and 19, look what happens. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized and taking food. He was strengthened for some days. He was with the disciples at Damascus. So he's there. I remember one time I was on a a mission trip in Madrid, Spain. Early on, I was invited to go uh, plant a church in Madrid. My wife and I I uh, spent several years pursuing planting uh, in a church in an international city all across the world. in Madrid, Spain had invited us in, and we were there. And on one of those trips, I got terribly, terribly sick. And there was this uh, this one guy who's a he's a like an Italian designer and lived in Spain and he could barely speak English, and he took care of me for days and days while I was laying on the couch, calling my wife back in Dallas and telling her I'm terribly sick, but he nurtured me back to health. These days were dark for for Saul. He was afraid. If Ananias knew that he was going to suffer for his name, I promise you Saul knew he was going to suffer. He had just met Jesus Christ. The Christophany in a personal revelation of Jesus in a powerful supernatural way. He was overwhelmed with guilt. It was a dark time for him. And in this moment, the historian Luke records, and immediately there's a breakthrough. And something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and he rose and was baptized and taking food. He was strengthened for some days. He was with the disciples at Damascus. Here's what happens. Saul's ministry adventures begin. This is the beginning. Perhaps no greater influence of Christianity outside of Jesus Christ than this guy right here, Saul of Tarsus. He will write uh, the majority of our New Testament uh, epistles and letters and help us understand theological doctrines and rich resources like the book of Romans. He's the bedrock in so many ways of the early church and, and the faith today that we hold precious to us. He says, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. He was going to the places that rejected Jesus the most and standing up in the center of them. And because he was schooled in Jewish thought and traditions, he could debate and reason like nobody else. He was incredibly gifted intellectually, he was well off, he was a Roman citizen. He had incredible influence and he immediately goes out, the scripture says, and proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Jesus Christ is. But look, still, while he's preaching, while he's demonstrating that he's a genuine believer, verse 21, and all who heard him were amazed and said, this is, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And he has, not, he has not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests. And it says, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. That's called apologetics. He was helping them understand intellectually in a very rational way and proving from scriptures that they, were, they had missed the Messiah and Jesus was the Messiah. He spent his time reasoning and proving that Jesus was the Christ. Verse 23, when many days had passed, look, the Jews plotted to kill him. They didn't like him. They rejected him and his message. Why? They hate change. Most people hate change. They did not understand that Jesus was the Messiah. They did not understand that the ancient prophecies and scriptures were pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of those promises and prophecies. So they set their plot, became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. And that time, there was city gates that would block a city that was used to protect. It was also used to define a, a distinct boundary. And they would watch those gates to make sure that he wouldn't leave because they wanted to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. There's a change that's happened. Some people have received uh, Saul and the change that's happened in his life, and now they're going so far to protect him and to help save his life. Look what we're going to see in verse 26. God's going to raise up another man by the name of Barnabas to vouch for Saul's ministry. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him. So now he's in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where he had Stephen stoned. This would have been a sobering experience for Saul to walk in. Now he's a Christian. Now he's got to hang out with all the big boys where all the apostles are in Jerusalem. And immediately on his entrance he would have remembered what happened with Stephen. He attempted to join the disciples. He's going to try to join the team. Team Jesus. And they were all, look, afraid of him. Of course they're afraid of him. He probably had had, uh, their friends or their family members killed or arrested in persecuting the church. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. The fear of the unknown. The fear of this guy surely couldn't change. Surely God's really not that powerful to convert a guy like Saul of Tarsus. Surely he couldn't do that. But oh, he can. But Barnabas, look at this. That mean, son of encouragement, took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road that he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. We need more Barnabas. We need more guys and gals like this that are, they're going to vouch for somebody. They're going to stand up for them. They're going to have faith to believe that God can do anything. He can take somebody that is so far off and change their life, See, Barnabas is so cool. No individual had more impact on the early church apart from Jesus, uh, the Apostle Paul, than this guy, Barnabas. You know, his name's only mentioned a handful of times in Scripture. He's the hero that no one remembers. His name virtually is nowhere, but his fingerprints in Scripture are everywhere. See, without Barnabas... Humanly speaking, there would be no Apostle Paul. There would be no missionary journeys in most of Acts. There would be no letters from a Paul. That's almost half of the New Testament. There would be no Gospel of Mark, no Gentile church. And here we have Christianity where it is today. And it's Barnabas' influence to help vouch for Saul as a world-class leader. That God's going to use for great change. Look at verse 28. Saul continues to be used by God. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem. Barnas's, uh witness. His vouching for Saul worked. So he went in and out among them in, in Jerusalem. Preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Um, these are Greek speaking Jews. That were a part of the killing of Stephen that Saul had likely been buddies with at one time and now he's getting into it with him but they were seeking to kill him and when the brothers learned this they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus that's his hometown they take him and they probably he goes back to find some respite and some safety with his friends and family so the church throughout all Judea, verse 31, in Galilee, and Samaria, had peace and was being built up and walking in fear of the Lord. That's a respect for the Lord, seeing what great things God has done. And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. When that barrier of change was overcome, it continued to thrive. Break through the barrier of change here at North Valley, I want to encourage you in five important steps for all of us. Real quickly, number one is that the younger generation needs to ask for mentors. See, Saul was a younger guy, and he knows he's going to have to get older men and, and women in his community of friends that's going to help mature him in his faith and in his journey. Uh, Many of you that are, I would call the younger generation, you millennials, you Gen Xers, you Gen Ys, is this, is you don't know what a good family looks like because you didn't have one. You don't really know what a good marriage looks like because many of you didn't have one. The average kid today, the average kid today is growing up in a single mom household with a live-in boyfriend. This is a unique church because we have a lot of young people and then we have a a number of older generation people. I think it's a perfect blend for healthy discipleship. And let me speak to you younger generation. I'm not asking you to try to find one mentor that's going to answer all your financial questions, all your marriage questions, all your uh, life questions. What you need is you need a number of mentors in your life. I don't go to our accountant and ask him for uh, help in construction work. I go to the accountant to talk about finances. I go to the doctor to find physical remedies and help for my physical health. In the same way, we're going to see that it's important for us at North Valley that this younger generation has got to ask for mentors. Be the bold one. Saul of is, is, is going to take the step forward knowing that Ananias is going to be a part of his development. Confirming his faith. And Barnabas is going to show up. And Saul and Barnabas are going to go on and do incredible things together. You younger generation need to ask for mentors at this church. Don't do life alone. You don't have it figured out. If you didn't have a good family, the church could be that family. The older generation needs to invest in the young. How do you do that? Let me tell you this. If you've been married 10 years and you're a Christian, husband, wife, 10 years, then you've got to be a neighborhood group leader. You have to. There's no no option. You have to do that. Because in that, you model for other young couples what it looks like to actually stay married, to be married, what repentance looks like, what confession looks like, what forgiveness looks like. Learning how to deal with the other spouse when you don't want to deal with the other spouse, but you stay faithful. Or you ought to be in the classrooms with the kids investing into the younger generation. Or you ought to just walk around and be friendly towards the younger folks so that... When you're asked or you take the boldness and say, can I come alongside you and help you out? Let me tell you something that I love about this church is we have a younger generation and an older generation. This is a perfect combination. We are a multi-generational church. And we're going to increasingly seek to see that happen and celebrate that generational diversity. That is so important for our spiritual development. You older generation, you older that are, are widowed or widowers... You can invest into others. You can be involved in, with our kids or uh, um, through our neighborhood groups. We're not going to do neighborhood groups for the old people and neighborhood groups for the young people. No, 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 no. You need each other, amen? You really need each other. And and, and listen to me for a second. You, This older generation is that you need to know that most millennials are excited about getting to know you because anybody that would take interest in them and help them out in any way is going to be a great friend. Most of this younger generation didn't grow up in the stability that you've got. And so you have a unique position and a platform in American culture right now in America, in the church. This community is a really special community, North Valley, I mean, the larger North Valley. It is a, uh, there's a bit of a retirement community and it's a young family community. We're not the urban hipsters, the young up-and-coming, young professional. That's downtown Phoenix. Skinny jeans are all up in there. Okay? It's really cool. It's really hip. Um, We're lucky when we get something besides Walmart or Best Buy up here, you know? So, here's the point, though, I want to encourage you, is that we just need each other. Uh, Number three, we need to welcome newcomers. And when you're here at church and you see somebody walk in that's sitting alone, be the first person to say, would you sit with me? Hey, I'm so-and-so. Come sit with me and my wife or sit with me. Or just go sit by that person. Listen, that's what Barnabas did. He welcomed Saul and then introduced him and said, no, 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 you've got to understand this guy. This guy's the real deal. There's something to see here. Integrating people in. We all need to welcome newcomers. We all can do that. Number four, we just encourage each other. Be an encouragement. The world can be so discouraging. But let the church be a place where there's, we're encouraged. We're built up. We can all encourage one another. Number five, help each other take next steps. It's exactly what Ananias did. He helped them take next steps. He baptized them. You can all do that. Help each other take the next steps. Let me pray, and uh, we'll move on from here. Heavenly Father, I thank You for our time together in Your Word. It's always timeless. I pray, God, that as we move forward in this service and in our time together, um, Lord, that You would take uh, this message and use it to inspire um, each and every one of us where we're at in whatever season of life and see that we belong together as a multi-generational church. Uh, Build us up and help us to multiply, God, as your grace is upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give online today at northvalleychurch.org.